the famous last words of people reveal something about what they thought about life and about death. You've maybe heard the funny story of General John Sedgwick, a Union general in the Civil War at the Battle of Spotsylvania. He was standing there and he said, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And just moments later, he was hit by a Confederate bullet, the left eye, and he died instantly. Some people are way overconfident about their security in this world. Would you agree? Then there was John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, and a preacher he prayed, take me for I come to thee. What great final words, take me for I come to thee. That guy knew where he was going. How did he know that? Because he lived a faith that he knew was genuine, right? Um, then there's Charles Darwin. Remember that guy? 1882, he said, I am not the least afraid to die. He had no fear of God while he lived, and even at the point of death, he didn't realize the judgment he was about to face. John Wesley's mother, Susanna, said, Children, when I am gone, sing a song of praise to God. She knew where she was at in the ring. She knew what was going to happen and what she'd be hearing. She wanted the kids matching that on earth. Try to grasp by faith what I'm going to be experiencing and sing the praise along with me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, it recounts Paul's trip to heaven. He doesn't say it was his trip. He says he knew a man, but he's talking about himself. But he keeps saying, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. It's a very strange statement, but it lets you know how these things are hard to define. Thinking about that, Dr. Ron Rhodes in his book, What Happens After Life, writes of that experience, Paul had actually been caught up to heaven and he witnessed it firsthand. He liked what he saw there and he wanted to go back. That lets us know when he says it's far better to go. He was one guy that got to go there, see a few things, not allowed to tell us all the things he saw and heard, come back and say, you know what? It's far greater. He let that out. It's far greater. He knew. Of course, for we believers in Jesus as the Son of God, and that's what this sermon series is for, believers in Jesus Christ. Then you can say what Paul wrote in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ, and say it with me, to die is gain. I already know that. That's our main thought of the series, to die is gain. And we're asking and answering some questions from the Bible about death. We don't have one text. We're moving around in Scripture a little bit. Last time we completed our third question, and that was, what is death? We saw that it's separation of the soul from the body, that man has an immaterial part, soul, spirit, mind, whatever, but it's one component. It removes from the body. The body dies. It's the shell. It goes back to the earth, but the spirit returns to God for judgment. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7 summarizes that well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. As it was. That's where the body was taken from, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. That's the human being, two-part, and when that split happens, that separation happens, we call that physical death. The fourth question we began last time, and it's really at the heart of this sermon series, what will believers experience right after we die? And I've given the caveat that since I haven't died and I didn't take notes, that everything you're hearing here comes from a verse here or there, piecing it together in a little bit of imagination. So take it for as far as you think it can be proven from Scripture. Well, we remind ourselves that what happens after death is very different for the believer and the unbeliever, and I want to make that clear, even though we're talking about the believer, what happens to an unbeliever is not at all what I will be describing. 
If you're not sure you're a believer, then you should be sitting here through the whole sermon saying, how do I become a believer? (laughs) And that is to give up the control of your life, ruling your life, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, confess him as your savior from sin, and that he rose from the dead. You believe in his resurrection. You put all your hope and your trust in him. He died to pay for your sins so you could qualify for heaven. He rose from the dead to beat death. He's waiting for you to respond to him and give up the rulership of your life. Once you do that and you hand over the rulership of your life, confess him as the son of God, God will save you right then and there. And you will you will be qualified for heaven. That's what makes someone a believer. And then, of course, they begin to follow Christ after that. In the, the website, BibleStudyTools.com, it summarizes the distinction between a believer and an unbeliever this way. What happens when you die depends on what happens before you die. The Bible classifies the whole human race into two broad categories, the saved and the lost. The saved are those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The lost are those who have not. What happens to the saved is radically different from what happens to the lost. We're not describing what happens to the lost in this series, but it ain't good, and it's not changeable, and it's horrific. And there are descriptions of them in the book of Revelation, if that's where you want to go. But for the believer, and I pray you are a believer in Jesus Christ, here is what you will experience the moment you die. And this is review from last time. First, the soul or spirit, slips out of your body, almost imperceptibly to you it seems, like a hand slipping out of a very loose glove. You'll probably begin to see some things in your environment. And then second, you will immediately encounter some kind of a very bright light, probably those of shining angels that have been sent to escort you to a place you don't know how how to get to. Remember, Jesus said that they came and got Lazarus when he died. They escorted him. There was a chariot uh, with the angelic host, Uh, with the whirlwind of fire that also came for Elijah when he was caught up into heaven, although that was in his body. In 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 21, it seems consistent with the role of angels that they are there to minister to the elect. And what time does a believer need more help from an angel than at the moment they're most afraid, where their life is most upset and they're about to enter into death, the least secure time of life, and there God has his powerful warrior-like angels there to guide you. And then third, you will go on a very speedy, but serene trip from earth to wherever heaven is, which is in another dimension. It's not a matter of getting past the third galaxy out there or something like that. It's a matter of entering into a whole different realm. We will pass through the heavens. The first heaven is the sky. The second heaven is what we call space. The third heaven is what we call heaven. We will enter into the third heaven, a glorious place that eye has not seen and ear has not heard of. Fourth, with stunning change, we will be in a totally new environment an environment that we might describe and is described in Scripture as bright, as clean, as worshipful, as orderly, as gorgeous, as inviting, and yet as warm, as feeling like home, as friendly, as the place that you always wanted to be. Our surroundings will be so new, so different, we will struggle even to find words to describe it. And then fifth, we will begin encountering people and beings that God has created, we surmise that we think we will see the Lord Jesus Christ first. I can't guarantee that, but it makes sense to me. Jesus will call us by name. Do you know God knows the name of every single star in the sky? There's no way he's going to forget the name of every single one of his elect. In John chapter 10, he calls us his sheep. He knows us by name. He calls us by name. And we will look into his eyes and we will look at the scars in his hands and his side. 
and we will see what? Compassion. The deepest kind of love and compassion. We will see that he understands us and our life and what we went through and all the things we asked him, but why, Lord? Why, Lord? Why, Lord? That we'll see in his stare and his gaze, he understands. We will be shocked at the combination of all of this love and yet the strength and power that comes from him as well. We forget how imposing he is, the unmatched glory that no one can stand in his presence. He is God of God, light of light. He's a source of all being. He knows more about us than we know about ourselves. We will experience that moment, an unrestrained expression. The best way I can describe it is the full fear of God along with the full attraction and love of God at the same time. You debate, should I draw close to God and love him tenderly or should I be afraid of him because of all of his judgment? And the answer is yes. And how do they fit together? I don't know, but I think we'll experience that to the fullness in that worshipful moment. We will know we are unworthy to be in his presence. How holy he is, but how accepting he is. How does that go together? We will know his welcome is genuine. We will say, I am home. Jesus said, John 14, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. He said, let not your heart be troubled. He said that in the context of being yanked from this world into the next world, really he was talking about the rapture at that point where it will be suddenly snatched. Those that are alive when Jesus comes back into the air and meet him in the air and go off to the father's house. But a similar experience has to be true of us going to the father's house without our body, without, without our earthly tent that is, in whatever spirit form we are. It will be a warm place. That's what a home is. It's a warm place. Ah, I'm finally home. It's an inviting place. It's a place of protection. When you're at home, that's your own castle, right? You feel safe till a tornado comes along like the folks down in Tennessee, rips it all apart, and you realize there is no real security in this world, right? You're with family. You're with love and cheer. Everyone is known. Everyone is cared for in the home. And Christ is awaiting our arrival. And he has it all set up for us. And it's, we know it's where we belong. We also know we really didn't fit in too well down below. We're, we get it better at that point. We see, we see our, our kin. We see what our kind is. We realize that and we're able to project that. That's why it was such a struggle down there. We're able to learn that as well. Lessons we knew from our Bible school and we, we learned somewhat, but our awareness of it will become more acute. Have you ever been away on a very difficult journey and everything went wrong? You got sick on the journey and the travel plans didn't work well. and The people you're meeting with weren't fun to be with. You couldn't wait to get where? Back home again, right? I think it'll be a little bit like that. Sometimes when you're away from home, getting home could just flood your mind all the time. I just got to get home. I got to get back to where I belong. And I think we'll have that feeling. Here's a challenging thought from Erwin Lutzer's book, One Minute After We Die. Quote, the fact that we don't view death with optimism just might be because we think of death as taking us from our home rather than bringing us to our home. Unlike Paul, we have become so attached to our tent, talking about our body down here, that we just don't want to move. Is that you? Well, here's the sixth thing we're going to see, and we pick up, uh, we're kind of leaving the review from last time and entering into the new material. We're going to see our loved ones. We're going to see our Christian loved ones in heaven. 
Of course, there's no telling in what order we're going to see them, how fast we're going to get to see them, how long we'll talk with this one or that one. But every last believer that we have known on earth and who beat us to paradise is going to already be there. Do they form a greeting line? I have no idea. In their spirit form, they will be there. And I'm going to tell you something. They're going to appear beautiful. They're going to be gorgeous. They will be in a grand state of mind too. Don't think of them the last time you saw them when they were all grumpy. They'll be in like the best mood you ever saw them. They will be helpful. They will be understanding, servant-like, happy. You're going to enjoy them like you've never enjoyed them before. And you will know them. Not just that you will recognize them. You will know them. And you will love them just as you loved them before, but maybe even better. The rich man in Hades, in punishment, knew who he was and knew who his brothers were and knew who Lazarus was and knew who Abraham was, whom he hadn't even met. He was concerned for all those things. If he knew that, of course we're going to know who we're meeting. How much greater will our fellowship be up above than it is down here below? We are the church that is in the midst of struggle and in the midst of fighting for the gospel down here, right? You know what they're called up above? Theologians call them the church triumphant. Sounds like a fun place to be. The church triumphant above. Your deceased husband or wife will be there too, if a believer. And the love will be sweeter than it was before, though now not in a sensual or sexual way. Jesus said when we finally get our resurrection bodies, we'll be like the angels. We won't marry or be given in marriage. That means we'll cherish our relationships but it's also going to be different. It's going to be a spiritual, deeper kind of relationship, like the closest of friends. Isn't it wonderful for those of us who are married and really already view our spouse as our closest friend? That's what we're going to have for all eternity. Unafraid to share all. Unafraid to bear the soul to another person, knowing there's no judgment there. There's just understanding and love and talking and communication. That's what marriage is supposed to be on earth. Caring for each other to the fullest your son or your daughter or your mother or father or best friend or cousins or that grandmother that led you to the Lord or whatever member of your family that you cherish most, he or she will be there too. He or she will know you and love you. Isn't that great? Erwin Lutzer back in his book points out, death breaks ties on earth, but renews them in heaven. Just because you lose something doesn't mean you lost everything. You gained something. It will be a grand reunion with loved ones. And yeah, no conflicts at this family reunion. No fighting, no disagreements, no resentment, no backbiting, no gossip. Everyone's going to love being at this party. God is the God of the living, not the dead. Jesus said those words to the Sadducees who doubted the resurrection. And Jesus had to remind them of the words of the Old Testament when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning they're still alive. They're still there. I'm the God of the living, not the dead. They, hadn't, they didn't have their resurrection bodies at that point in time, but they were still living and God was still their God. They still existed in God's presence in that other realm. That's whom we're going to see. I got questions for some of these Bible guys, you know, like, like Samson. I want to know what really was going through your head, Samson. You know, I want to know. I, you know, I'm not going to be hard on him. I, I, know, I know how hard life is, you know. I want to make sure I interpreted his life correctly, you know what I'm saying? I got questions for this. You know, when I did my sermon series on you, Abraham, was that good? You know, just think about that. They are the dead in Christ. That first Thessalonians chapter four and verses 13 through 17 talks about, and we will join them. That's the rapture, but we'll join them even before that. If we die, they died ahead of us. They're there. They're in a glorious state. 
I noticed on Sundays that most of you really enjoy being with one another. And I find that one of the most beautiful, sweet things about Hope Bible Church, looking around and seeing the pockets of people talking to one another, finding each other in the foyer, you know, the foyer ministry of talking. <laughs> it's great. I wish everybody has connections here and friends. I know sometimes that doesn't happen. I wish I could make that happen for every one of you. But most people, when their heart is open and they want to love, they find somebody here to be a friend. And it's a beautiful thing to see because we have such diversity here. And I always urge you to make a friend across your normal barriers, right? Try to get out of your comfort zone. If you're a country hick, try to learn something from someone in the city and vice versa, please. Those kinds of things. But I love to see that. But just think how much sweeter the fellowship will be above when we don't have any hidden motives in our hearts and everything is straightforward. We have an eternity to spend with each other. First in heaven, then in the millennial kingdom, after the resurrection of our bodies for a thousand years. And then there's this thing called the new heaven and the new earth, and it never ends. Even the Old Testament, we mentioned, spoke of the reunion with loved ones, like Jacob, that says was gathered to his people in Genesis 25, 17, a reference more than just to his body was thrown next to someone else's body. And of course, we will recognize each other in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 23, David knew that he would be reunited with his dead infant child in glory. He said, I will go to him. That is this dead child that he never had a conversation with, but he will not return to me. He knew I'm going to go to him. And he knew obviously that means I'm going to see him and recognize him. I already mentioned Lazarus and the rich man. They all knew each other. In Matthew 8 and verse 11, speaking of beyond the state in heaven, the intermediate state, we called it last time, and into the millennial kingdom, it says many will recline with the patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the table on the land and they will fellowship together. Well, of course they're going to know who Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are. Remember the promise of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then what? Face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will what? Know fully. The knowledge increases, it doesn't decrease. What kind of a reunion would it be if we all gathered and nobody even knew who the other person was? How could Paul even write that these words are to comfort you that you're going to be with those deceased if we didn't know who they were? Obviously, our knowledge of the relationships will grow and become deeper. Seventh, as we continue this journey, we will realize that we are still ourselves. Now, you have to listen to this one a little carefully. Even though we are going to be changed in some dramatic ways, we're not going to become a different person with a different conscience or a different spirit. It's the spirit that is inside of your body right now that is who you are going to be when you are glorified and brought up into heaven. You will have the same history, the same personality, the same traits that you have right now. We, our self, our consciousness continues to exist. Our spirit, our way of thinking, our awareness is still there. Our personality is the same. We are not somebody different. Our knowledge of everything on earth continues. In fact, our memories will be clearer than ever before. If you're older, you know how hard it gets with memory, right? Your brain gets fuzzy. I'm in chemo fog right now. When you take chemo, it makes it hard to, to discern some things and sort out things. But when even your mind is the brightest that it can be and you're as alert as anything and you ate all the right things you're supposed to eat and you took all those special juices you're supposed to do for the brain, it won't compare to how lucid your mind will be then. 
In fact, I think it'll be just super clear at that time. Again, quoting Lutzer's book, he says, death does not change what we know. Our personalities will just go on with the same information we have stored in our minds today. So I say that, but then I say immediately, eighth, you will be greatly improved. Okay, don't miss that. You're the same person, but you're going to be glorified. And that means you're going to be greatly improved. You will know of that change also. You will sense that change. One great change, and I hope I hear some amens from this, is that every desire that we have to sin will be eradicated. We will be beyond what we talk about in Bible class, justification, where we're declared innocent in God's sight. Beyond even the struggle to be sanctified daily, we will be in glorification, the final state. Of course, we haven't glorified the body yet, but I'm talking about the soul here. What will it mean to be a glorified saint? I'll let you know when it happens to me. <laughs> Here's one thing I know. Our love for God will be intensified with all of this description about what we will experience in heaven. The truth is, as we think about our experience, we're not really going to be thinking about ourselves that much. With all this discussion about what will I see and experience and all that, in some ways, I may be misleading you because I think the primary thing that will be happening is our awareness of the glory of God will consume us. It will be all about losing sight of us and our agenda and realizing He's the meaning of everything. We'll be lost in Him. We'll be fixated on Him. Faith will give way to sight. We'll be captivated by what we see. You ever been to one of those IMAX theaters and just can't take your eyes off of it? Surround sound, all that, Dolby sound, I don't even know what to call it now. And it overwhelms all your senses, that'll seem like nothing. Ever been in front of a waterfall that's so powerful you can't hear the person speak next to you? God's, God's energy, it, it, it'll be beyond all of that. Our affections towards God in heaven will be so strong, so pure. We will see him as he is. And we will love what we see him. To know him is to love him. To see him is to know him. Our struggles with sin will end. There'll be no desire to lust. We'll see through every last one of those lies. There'll be no desire to hide or be afraid or tell other people I'm not really sinning. We'll realize, wait, I'm saved. I'm safe. Everything is fine. I can speak the truth about what kind of person I am. There'll be no desire to hurt anybody else. There'll be no jealousy of what someone else has. There'll be no envy in the heart. There'll be no unbelief. There'll be no doubts plaguing your mind. Same person, but now glorified. Ninth, we will be fixed on God's program. One of the hardest things about being a pastor, leading a local church, is trying to get all of you guys, all of us, to keep in front of us God's agenda. Because you go out there and there's so many things that you think about and you want to do and there's so many wonderful things you can do and some of them are actually very good. I, I wouldn't criticize you for doing them. But trying to keep the main thing the main thing. So much of our time is wasted doing lesser things. Are we really focused on building the church? That's what God is doing. Yes, I know God is the God of all people and he has governments he's looking after and he's dealing with the, the sp spirits and the, you know, this and that. But the main thing God is doing in this age is building his church. And he's calling people to lead the church and to plant more churches and to build up in the church and to preach his word and to disciple and to do all of that. That's what he wants to do. When you, when you get rid of the life, you'll begin to see that you had things lopsided in your life. That there wasn't a clarity about what your mission was really all about. You're too focused on 
doing this in your work or doing that with your children rather than the things that you were supposed to be getting your children or showing in your work. It wasn't all aligned behind serving the one eternal kingdom. That's the only thing that's going to last out of this life. It will become aware to you, this is what you should have been doing all along. Revelation chapter 6 and verses 9 through 10 is a passage we talked about before. The departed spirits had knowledge of what was going on on earth. And they appeared to be following the unfolding events during the tribulation. And they cried out, how long, O Lord, until you render justice for those that chopped our heads off? You know, we stood up for the name of Christ. When are you going to give justice for that? They're aware that there's this tribulation time, the seven-year period of time. They're aware of God's program, that being beyond the church age. And, and because they're aware of what's going on on earth and how much they see of it, I don't know. But they're rooting on that God will bring to completion his program. We know that the angels from heaven, do you know what they're often doing up there? Often they're coming and they're looking at what God's doing in the church. They're peeking in. They don't really understand it. They never had any grace shown to any of the fallen angels, the demons. And it tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, that they long to look into the things related to salvation, meaning they're studying the church and people getting saved and they're there serving and helping us, but they're getting an education on salvation. So if they're able to look and see, maybe we're going to be able to look and see some too. We certainly will have interest that whatever God is doing on earth is not a side issue, but the main issue. We will want God's kingdom to advance. We will be cheerleaders for Christ's church. We will not be concerned about our lesser agendas, but for God's program. We'll snap in a line and really get it at that point in time. And 10th, I will add that we most certainly will be praying. I don't know if you think that prayer is only for those that are needy on earth. The souls that are in heaven, again, referencing Revelation 6, 9, and 10, we're praying. In that case, they were praying for justice. It's altogether reasonable that we will be praying for the church on earth, for our loved ones down below struggling. Now listen carefully. The Bible does not in any way endorse praying to our ancestors when we're here on earth. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about believing people in heaven that be talking to God on behalf of the program of the church or those that are struggling. It seems that that would be natural for them to have compassion for us. We are not, when we get there, we'll not be able to communicate with folks on earth. God has shut that out. You know, it's not like grandma's going to appear in the closet and say, get to church. <laughs> but that's what they're rooting for and praying for. What would those in heaven say to us if they could? Well, we kind of already know the answer to that because that was the struggle with the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man said, send someone back from the dead and warn my brothers about this place called Hades where I'm in torment and in the fire. And Abraham said, no, because if someone came back from the dead, they're not going to listen to them. They already have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to that. Translated, they already have the Bible. They already have the scriptures. Let them listen to the scriptures. So I conclude from that, that if we could listen to what the saints who have died above would be saying to us, they wouldn't be saying anything different than are the main lessons of the Bible heard over and over again. What God is generous and good and every promise that he's made from scripture is true and we see it now. Christ really is the son of God and he's poised to come back and to take over rulership of the whole world. He is the king of kings. Be faithful to him unto death. Don't sin. Serve him with all of your might. Quit making excuses. Be a man. Endure trials. Love one another fervently. They would say, 
that what Paul wrote in Romans 8.18 is true. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Live down below with the understanding of what is coming above. Does that make sense? Snaps every decision that you make right in the line. How do I live now? Answer, where are you going then? What do you want to hear from your Lord and Savior then? Because you will, you will go there and you will hear from him. Eleventh, we will have extraordinary joy and peace. In Psalm 1611, it says, praying to God, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. So again, whatever picture you have of heaven, it's not boring. It's not lazy. It's not floating on clouds with little harps. Although I'd like to learn to play a harp. I think that's kind of cool. It's exciting. It's thunderous. It's the most joy your soul will ever have in the presence of your maker. That's what God's word says. In your presence is fullness of joy. If your view of God is different than that, you haven't figured God out yet. You've been listening to the lies of the devil. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Wow. God doles out pleasures forever. God gives good things to his children. Remember Jesus when he said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give what is good to those who ask him, right? Don't listen to the lie of the devil that heaven is drab and boring. Don't listen to Satan's lie. Again, Dr. Lutzer in his book comments, think of your purest joy on earth and then multiply that value many times and you might catch glimpses of heaven's euphoria. Twelfth, Another truth that, and this is important to me, I don't know, maybe some of you won't like this one, but it's important to me, is that there's going to be a lot of activity in heaven. There's going to be a lot of things to do in heaven. And I'm a doer, and I like things to do. I want to accomplish something. So I'm very glad to know that there are going to be things to do. In fact, a lot to do. We're not going to be passive in heaven. Please expunge that from your mind as well. There will also be a matching willingness, willingness to do the things that we're supposed to do. Every tendency to laziness will be gone. You know, trying to get the old body up and going, that won't, you won't have to do that. Work will be fulfilling. Yes, there's going to be rest. We're going to talk about that. But it will not be the rest of doing nothing. It will be the rest of delight in all that we do. Have you ever been working on something and it feels like rest to you? It feels like I'm in my groove and I just enjoy that, well, then think about that and multiply that thought. There are many things that we would do down here that we will likely do above. Artists will draw. My guess is they'll do it better. Musicians will play, and my guess is they'll wield their instruments better. Scientists may even explore. Who knows? There's so much to understand. I think there's definitely going to be gardeners because a paradise means a garden, But there's some things that will not be up there. I'm sorry. You'll be unemployed in this regard. There won't be any police officers above. There won't be any doctors or locksmiths. There won't be any undertakers, no uh, firemen, no soldiers, no pharmacists, no auto salesmen. We're not going to need it. And no voter registrants, thank God. But there will be a plethora of activities in heaven starting with the highest activity of all, which is service toward God and his temple. That is directly stated in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 15. 
We will never have to be exhorted, come on, serve God. Come on, give a little more of your time. Never have to be exhorted like that. Preachers are going to be out of business. We will always be volunteering our time. We'll go up to someone, you know, you said, oh, they're already serving. We also will be reigning with Christ. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 5. Reigning that will go on through the millennium and into the eternal state. We will be judging angels. Ooh, scratch your head on this one. Paul makes a passing statement of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Right now, mankind is described uh, as lower, as a category lower than the angels because of their power and their knowledge and their skill and their freedom and all of that. But then we are going to be higher than the angels, particularly when we get our, our glorified bodies, and we will be in the position of judging angels, whether that's talking about fallen angels or rewarding the good angels or whatever, that wasn't specified. But it shows that, that God now entrusts us with some ruling and judging and reigning as well. Very interesting. You know, God put Adam and Eve in charge of the world, right? And he gave them a garden to be in. Right from the very beginning, God said, I like it when my creatures work. I like it when they enjoy their work. I'm putting them in a paradise with a garden, and it's going to be a wonderful kind of work. It's mankind that messed it all up. And then the work became not pleasurable. Isn't it interesting that one of the largest chunks of the curse comes on cursing what ends up being our work? We want to be able to do things and accomplish things, and we just get frustration. I mean, read the book of Ecclesiastes. That's frustration, right? I'm going to do all of this, and I'm going to leave it to this numbskull. After I die, what was the point of life? That's basically a summary of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> no, there's more in it than that. But work will be satisfying. It'll last. You'll build something. It won't be washed out. Thinking through the intermediate state and into the new heavens and the new earth, who knows? Who knows what the Lord may have us explore through all of the worlds and all of the galaxies. Now that we took put the Hubble telescope out there and we looked at it, they're trying to tell us that there's billions of galaxies with billions of stars and it's beyond what we can even think and there must be like millions of inhabited planets from their evolutionary perspective just doing the math although evolution didn't actually happen on this planet so i don't know how they can project it to any other planet but think about all of the worlds that could be or what god would want us to do or explore i, I don't i don't know but it's an intriguing thought that God is not one to hold back our joy. He's not back to hold, to hold back our learning. He created us in his image so we would have that kind of inquisitiveness that leads to all these sci-fi movies that they trying to figure out things and usually getting in it a perverted way. But we will be the ones that inherit all of that. We will be the ones to understand and grow in our love for each other and our love for the creation of God, just realizing how vast his knowledge all those psalms that say, it's too much for my mind. And we'll be just blown away by it all. Thirteenth, we will have fellowship with believers we never met. Imagine the guys down through church history going to sit down and have a conversation with Calvin. Oh, that's going to be good. Might have to get in line. Or St. Augustine. Or whoever it would be. Maybe it's someone you hadn't even heard of. Someone that got no recognition in church history at all. But they were... They were instrumental in breaking open a whole country for the gospel. And you're going to find out about that person. And you'll be like, wow, I never knew that. And you'll realize how greatly that unknown person who sacrificed their life was never written about for the kingdom of God. And you'll get to talk to them about what they did, how it was worth it. Or we'll get to talk to people in the Bible. Noah, 
all the things like he wanted to figure out. How was it feeding all the animals on the ark? Or Daniel or Esther, what was it like to go before the king and, and to say, if I, if I die, I die, but I'm going to do it to save my people? Or Timothy in the New Testament, what was it like working with Paul? He's always pushing you. Was it tough? Were you really that timid? Silas, or what about Mary Magdalene? What an interesting person. Now you can sit down, have uninterrupted conversation, continue to learn. Fourteenth, we will engage in heartfelt praise and worship. Angels are ceaselessly praising the living God, according to Revelation 4, 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. They're trying to encompass all of his nature. He's eternal. He's holy. And they have no idea what those attributes even really are. But they sing it. And we will join the chorus. We will ceaselessly do that. Why? Because we're bored? Because we have nothing else to do? No, because God is so overwhelming. We have to do it. We will find ourselves so overwhelmed in his presence. Praise keeps coming. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 5:12. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the almighty, righteous and true are your ways, king of the nations. Revelation 15:3. We will find that worship is formal and organized and timed and voices sing in harmony and musical instruments are perfectly resonating. We will also find that worship is spontaneous and exhilarating and unstoppable. Oh, I wish by faith all of you could enter into deeper worship even right here on each Sunday morning, that you come in and say something to yourself. This is not a Sunday routine. This is a time to worship that being. Come a little closer. Sing a little louder. Lean forward. Get some energy and emotion behind it. This is who he is. Oh, sing with exuberance. That's how heaven will be. Our lips will bless him forever and ever, and we won't even actually have lips. I don't even know what we'll have. (laughs) Waiting the resurrection body. God is awesome will take on new meaning. It'll be just jaw-dropping, you know, eyes bugging out. And it's just, he's not describable. God's not describable. Fifteenth. Okay, we will enjoy rest. Yes. Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. You worked hard for the Lord. These were in the tribulation period. You suffered. The good things you did are going to be rewarded. They're coming along with you. And now you get to rest from that labor as well. You will get a chance to rest. There will be in heaven no tyranny of the urgent. Isn't that beautiful? You won't be driven by a clock, but by God's agenda. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest and plenty of rest, even for the soul. Not just just talking about the body in the ground, but for the soul. Life will be peaceful up above, orderly, serene, composed, unruffled. I got ruffled this morning. My feathers got ruffled. I had a hard morning. Came in, got into the word. It settled me back down again. That's how it's always going to be in heaven. Sixteenth, we will get to explore all things in heaven. Again, this is sort of repeating some things before, but 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 says that there is a third heaven and it's paradise. 
Jesus used that exact word to describe heaven when he spoke to the thief on the cross, paradise. It is called paradise for a reason. There's something we can glean about our picture of what heaven will be like just from that word paradise. Ron Rhodes again comments, apparently this paradise of God is so resplendently glorious, so ineffable, so wondrous that Paul was forbidden to say anything about it to those still on in the earth. Maybe this explains why Paul was so anxious to get back there. First, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. The term is paradesis, paradesos, and it means garden of delight. Paradise means garden of delight. Boy, do I like that. Some other translations has it this way, garden of pleasure. Do you know what gardens have in them? Plants. A lot of plants. A whole variety of plants. Flowers, shrubs, trees, hedges, fruit, herbs, spices. Fascinating aromas. A garden has walls and pathways and hanging plants and flowing water and bubbling waterfalls. Pouring over rocks. Is that your view of heaven? Think of some of the most beautiful gardens you have ever seen. And then remember, God's budget is a little bigger than the people that put together that garden. And he's been building his garden a little longer, and he has more helpers. This thing, you might think of it, could go on for thousands of miles of trails and mountainsides. Again, think of the most glorious, imaginative garden that you could think of. I don't think anything we've seen will even rival if you've been in the Lord of the Rings and you see the, the hobbits and all those guys come around, come around the bend and they get the view of Rivendell where the elves live and it's this, this gorgeous place and you're like, oh, that looks so wonderful. I would like to just sit there and enjoy that. I think that'll look dinky compared to what heaven does. If you're into the Avengers, you know, not that we believe any of their, you know, their polytheism, but you're off to, what's the place called? Asgard, do I got that right? And that's where Thor is from. And you see this picture of these crystal buildings and all. And you think, wow, look at that. That's just the imagination of fallen men thinking of what a really advanced planet might look like. Again, that's not going to compete with what God has built and shown. It's beyond that. I'll guarantee that. I mean, I got five bucks I'll give to you in heaven if I'm wrong about that, okay? (laughs) I'm betting man on that. I think you're going to be coming and saying, "Uh, yeah, whoa, paradise. Heaven is not a bunch of cheap row houses, folks. And I don't mean to, you know, step on any, I don't mean to insult anyone. We all live in what we have to live in down here. It's not a trailer park. One day you're going to live in the best neighborhoods there are. Beverly Hills, not going to look so good. And we're not going to need walls and gates separating us from criminals. Some have said that have visited France that every home there is manicured. I doubt that's true of every home, but that will be true of every place in heaven. And after that, well, here is my well-researched biblical summary of what heaven will be like. And it comes from a children's song. We used to sing at day camp all the time. And no, I won't sing. Heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I'm going to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place and I want to be there. Forget Alice and her little wonderland. We literally have a glorious wonderland we're going to be heading into. When Moses was instructed to make the tabernacle, he said, you got to make it this way. It's a pattern after what's already in heaven. We often think of down here as the real substantial thing and heaven as the 
I wonder if that exists realm. But for the inhabitants of heaven, this is the copy. That's the primary. That's where all of logic and mathematics and science and thinking and language and architecture and everything comes from there flowing down to us. We are the copy. They are the original. They're real. Again, BibleStudyTools.com says, many Christians have a wrong view of death. We think we're going from the land of the living to the land of the dying. But the opposite is true. If you know Jesus, you are going from the land of dying to the land of the living, going up in heaven. Moving from a tent to a mansion, walking from the darkness into a well-lit room, coming home to see your family and friends, being set free from prison, taking a long journey to a new land, riding a chariot to the new Jerusalem, moving into a brand new home, opening a gate to a brand new world. Dr. Tony Evans says, have a good time at my funeral because I'm not going to be there. <laughs> the greatest thing by far about heaven is face-to-face -face fellowship with God. Of the new heaven and earth, it says in Revelation 22, 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their forehead. Imagine that. God will write his name right there on my forehead, your forehead. Psalm 17, verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. This is the greatest characteristic of heaven. Not just living on forever. Not just avoiding pain. Not just getting past this torrential river we call death that we're afraid of when we come to the banks of it. But seeing God on the other side. And yet we're told we can't see God. 1 Timothy 6, 16, God alone possesses immortality and he dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. No man has ever seen God or can see God in whatever his eternal essence is. But God will reveal himself and is revealing himself in heaven to a degree and in a way never seen here on earth. And we will see that. Again, to get us to ponder, Ron Rhodes writes, just think about it. Can anything be more sublime and more utterly satisfying for the Christian than to enjoy the sheer delight of unbroken fellowship with God and to have immediate and completely unobstructed access to the divine glory? The human mind can scarcely take all of this in. We will actually gaze upon the countenance of eternal God. Sin will never interrupt our fellowship with him. To fellowship with God will be the essence of heavenly life, the fount and source of all blessing. The crowning wonder of our experience in the eternal city will be the perpetual and endless exploration of the unutterable beauty, majesty, love, holiness, power, joy, and grace of God himself. Bible teachers and theologians have called this the beatific vision. That just means a happy sighting. Beholding God brings perpetual happiness to the person. A dynamic sense of fascination in all of God's perfections. Member of Jesus Christ, John wrote in 1 John 3, we know that when Jesus appears, we will see him just as he is. 
and we will be changed to be just like he is. Everybody who has this hope fixed on Christ will be pure. And remember again the words of 1 Corinthians 2. These are things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and has not even entered into the heart, the imagination of man. All the things that God has prepared for those who love him. One of the Psalms says God will withhold no good thing from those who love him. Next time, we'll go one more time with the series. I want to deal with some lingering questions related to death in the intermediate state. Clear up some things about false teaching, about the intermediate state, about what happens to our bodies at the rapture, about the question of suicide, about what and why God does not heal sometimes, about the judgment seat of Christ that will happen in the intermediate state, about miscarriages and abortions and infants when they die. And most importantly of all, how can you and I prepare for death? And God willing, we'll close up next time. Would you pray with me? Take these words, Lord, and as so far as they reflect what you've revealed in your word, let them resonate in the hearts and minds and faith of your people. Father, help us to know one thing is for sure. You hold our future in your hands and you're a loving God. May we believe every word that comes out of your mouth and may we be deeply comforted and energized knowing that we are victors in the end and nobody can steal that from us. Hallelujah, hallelujah God. Thank you for being our God and our savior and we love you and so we've offered our worship to you in Jesus' mighty name, amen.